0: Let's try to read this passage Uh, together. We'll start our service off right. Let's read together. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Go ahead and have a seat. I'm gonna leave this passage here on the screen because last week we kind of talked about these last four words here to do to do every good work. That's five words, Paul. To do every good work. We talked about last week how we all have a work that God has prepared for us to do. We all have a calling. As followers of Jesus Christ, all of us are called not to sit, but to participate in the mission of God, not to stand back, not to be passive. But to be active, and what we realize when we read the scriptures is the calling that we have in our life is a heavy calling. Like when we start to really start to unpack God's word and see the things that God wants us to do, uh, the way he wants us to live, we get this feeling of, of inadequacy. Like, man, this is a big call. How am I going to do this? How can I step with confidence into my calling? We talked about we have a great need a need to have a listening heart, a need for wisdom. We need to hear God's voice and be able to obey it. And we had a perfect example of that last week when we looked at Solomon. The very beginning of his reign of being king, he knew the good work that God had for him to be king of Israel, to replace his father David, to lead these massive people and to lead him in a way that honors the Lord. And he saw this large group and he said, man, I am in need. This calling is heavy. This calling is high. What do I do? How can I step in with confidence into the calling that God has for me? And we saw him ask for wisdom. And we said, as we venture into our new season, right, we are in a leadership transition here at Sunrise. If that's not aware, you're not aware of that, I'm not James, Uh, And if you can't see that, you need glasses. Maybe you're sitting in the back too much. Sit up front and you'll see, whoa, that guy looks worse. (laughs) Right? But we're in a transition. We're, We're moving. And what do we need? What's our greatest need right now? Unpacked last week, we need a listening heart. We need the wisdom of God. And I said as a leader, I want to model that to you. I want to listen. Before we launch out into the new adventure that God would have for us, I want to listen. I want to listen to you. I want to listen to God speak through you. I want to know how you're doing spiritually. I want to learn how you're doing before we launch out into some new, exciting adventures that God has for us. And so very practically, I want to show you something. In the seat back in front of you, there's this card right here. It has a big QR code and a little one. Please, what I love for you to do is take your camera phone. Snap a photo of that, or actually, when you pull out your camera app, it'll pop up. Click on that. It'll take you to a link, which will take you to our our, uh, church survey, our spiritual health assessment. This is going to help me learn how you're doing spiritually, and I really, really would love for you to lean into this. This is our listening moment. Now, as we talked about our greatest need last week, I kind of want to take the opposite side of that. And think of that as the positive side. What do we need? We need God's wisdom. We need a listening heart. But on the negative side, what could be our greatest pitfall? What could be our greatest hurdle? We're all eager and we're all excited to take on this new adventure. I'm eager. I'm excited to lead you as your pastor. So excited. What is one? I'm sure there's many. But what is one of the greatest pitfalls we could fall into, costing us basically Us realizing our potential. What could that be? I'll tell you, one of my greatest fears as a leader is ignorance. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I don't like when people know that I don't know something. Ignorance, I'm afraid of not knowing. And being in an ignorant position, not knowing, I don't mean it as an insult, but just a statement of not knowing When I find myself in that position, I find myself in a very embarrassing position. I don't like not knowing. (laughs) And it started actually when I was really young. When I was really young in elementary school, I was forced to participate in this spelling bee. So I get up there to participate in this spelling bee at the elementary school level, where they're really kind to you. So the first round is supposed to be easy. All the kids get through the first round unless you're this guy, right? I think I was the third kid called, right? Cat, easy, C-A-T-E, seven. I don't know what I said. Whatever I said, I ruined it because I got out on the first round. I remember the person, the teacher, delivering the questions, and it was like everybody's supposed to get through. Everybody will get a, you know, out applause. Everybody will feel triumph, not me. Like, and I knew it. She gave me the word. I've, I messed up the word. I'm putting numbers, hashtags. I was ahead of the game on hashtagging. I did it in elementary school. Like I was, ahead, I was ahead. And I got out. I just remember being so embarrassed. And you know that fear? That fear has stuck with me all the way up to now. I don't like not knowing. I don't, I don't like not knowing the answers to all the questions, the strategies to confront all the challenges, the solutions to all the problems. And it's true, as we venture out into this new season, there's a sense in which the things we don't know could hurt us, Or right? The things we're ignorant of could hurt us, not knowing could hurt us, but there's something actually more dangerous. In fact, we need to be more comfortable with ignorance probably ever than ever before. I just read this book and this author was talking about how the phrase, I don't know, is going to be said more now than ever before. And his case was this. He said, we are in a constant season of being newbies because the way of technology and just the progression of innovation is so fast, we're all in a state of being newbies forever. We can never master a skill because the moment you finally lock into what Microsoft wants you to do, they change it with an update. Right? The moment you finally get how to operate this thing, you're like, great. And then that thing pops up. Hey, plug in your phone tonight because we're going to give you an update. Oh, no. Right? Are you the guy who just, no, don't update. I just got a hold of this. There's a sense in which we're all going to be in this perpetual state of being newbies. And the book's argument was this. In leadership now, people don't want to know it all. They don't want to know it all either because it's so important or aware to them that we're all newbies. So anybody coming in with this kind of confidence and arrogance and prideful posture, pushing themselves as a know-it-all, we all know that that's not true because we constantly know the things that we don't know. We constantly are aware that there's so much out there that we don't know. So is ignorance the great trap that could get us? I don't think so. There's something even worse than that, much, much worse. And that leads us to our big idea for today. So the big idea of the message is this, arrogance is worse than ignorance. Ignorance, yes, is an unsafe place to be, for me an embarrassing place to be. Not knowing could hurt you, but there's something much more devastating, a different place to be in, and that is this, an arrogant place. Let me show you this. Go to Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9. If you don't have your Bible, it's going to be on the screen. But Proverbs chapter 9, here's what we're going to see. Solomon is going to present to us a really uh, colorful way to get this picture to us. He's going to talk about two parties in Proverbs chapter 9. One party is thrown by Lady Wisdom. And Lady Wisdom is going to create this wonderful banquet. And she's going to call people to herself. And the banquet's going to be full of life and joy. And then there's another lady who's preparing a party, and that's Lady Folly or Lady Foolishness. And her banquet may seem good, but in the end it leads to death. And these two banquets, they're calling out to three types of characters, three people, if you will. They're calling out to the wise, they're calling out to the arrogant, and then they're calling out to the ignorant. And I think sometimes what we do, I know what I have done, is I only think in two categories. There's the wise and the arrogant. But there's another group, and that's the ignorant. The ones that just don't know any better. And here's what I think we're going to find, is that the worst position to be in is actually the arrogant The ignorant still have hope, not knowing they still have hope. As long as they're willing to learn, they can become wise. But the arrogant are presented in such a dire way here that there seems to be no hope for them hearing Lady Wisdom. This is our greatest pitfall out there, is that through our pride, we'll plug our ears. I know better. I know what to do. I can handle this on my own. That's the worst place to be. Because even if we have great skill, We've placed ourselves in a position where we can't hear the voice of God. Let me show you this. Proverbs chapter 9. Let's start with verse 1. Proverbs chapter 9, starting with verse 1. We get the first party. The first party, and Lady Wisdom is throwing the party. Look at verse 1. It says, Wisdom has built her house. She has carved its seven columns. She has prepared a great banquet, mixed the wine, and set the table. Right there up front, Solomon is showing us Lady Wisdom taking her time. She's excited to have you. She wants you here. And she's preparing this banquet and she's seeking to give you great joy. In the beginning, she's the one calling. Now that, that, that should be interesting to us because that means that wisdom is outside of us. We got to go to the party. Wisdom is not inside of us. What we're going to see through Proverbs 9 is there's not an idea, a promotion of, hey, follow your, follow your heart. Or maybe that phrase, maybe you've used it before, I've heard it before, or just trust your gut. What a weird phrase, right? Trust your gut. Do you know what goes on in there? You get some pretty crummy ideas from your gut, I think. Here, wisdom is outside of us. And this should humble us just right up front, that it's true when we hear some wise words, it may resonate with us, maybe resonate with some of our desires, resonate with some of our thoughts, but we are not the authors of wisdom. We're not the designers of wisdom. We discover wisdom. We learn wisdom. Wisdom is given to us. We don't generate it. This is humbling already. This should already move us away from arrogance, is that wisdom is outside of us preparing a party. And that party is awesome, right? Her venue is perfect. First, she built the place. Isn't that great? She built the place, and she has seven columns. Now, what does that mean? To us, right, maybe if you're an architect, that means something to you. That means nothing to me. I don't know what that means. But in the ancient Near East, if you had seven support columns, this would be a massive, luxurious house. And I think... The biblical authors will use oftentimes numbers to illustrate the idea of perfection. Well, seven is the term or the number for perfection. I think what Solomon is setting up here is this is the perfect venue. This is the perfect place. It's large. It's luxurious. It is the perfect venue. And she has awesome food and drink. Right, look what it says. She has prepared a great banquet. Mix the wine. What does this mean? This means she's back there, she's probably mixing the wine with either spices or honey to kind of just give it a little more taste. Or she may be actually pouring water into the wine to make it more drinkable. Whatever is going on here, she is excited for you to enjoy her wisdom. Under her care, things are good. Now look at her invitation. She's got everything set. Now look at her invitation. Look at who she calls out to. And this is where we get the first character. I said there's the arrogant the ignorant, and the wise. And look who it is. she calls out to. We're in verse 3. She has sent her servants to invite everyone to come. She calls out from the heights overlooking the city. Come in with me, she urges the simple, to those who lack good judgment. Now just stop here. Who gets the invite? Is she talking only to the wise? No. She's talking to the ignorant. You know how relieving this is to me? (laughs) Just even reading this passage. I think it's interesting and almost ironic sometimes. The more and more and more I've tried to educate myself, the more and more I realize how much I don't know. Has that been your experience? The more and more I move into the mystery of this life, the more miles I travel into the mysteries of this life, the more I realize how many more miles I have to go. Like, I've got four kids. That's like a doctorate in parenting. (laughs) Ask me a parenting question. I'll always defer to my wife. I don't know. Ask her. She knows what she's doing. I'm just there, right? And it's true, the more and more we grow, the more and more we seek to know things, we get to a point where we realize there's a vast ocean of things I don't know. But it's okay to not know. Notice how Lady Wisdom isn't mad at them. She's not rebuking them. She's not embarrassing them. She's not shaming them. It's so comforting to my heart because I know I fear not knowing. I know I fear ignorance. I know I get embarrassed When I don't know the answer to a question, I don't know the strategy for the challenge. I know that. But Lady Wisdom does not make me feel foolish. Lady Wisdom doesn't insult me. Lady Wisdom says, that's okay. Come and learn. Come and learn. This is a safe place for us to be. Not knowing is not bad. But we just can't stay there. We have to listen to her call. Well, apparently what happens is she invites and they come. Look at verse 5. Come and eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed for you. Leave your simple ways behind and begin to live. Learn to use good judgment. Now, I think what happens here is the ignorant jump in. They join the party. And I think when they get there, what happens is Lady Wisdom decides, let me tell you about the other two guests. Let me tell you about the wise and let me tell you about the arrogant. It's like she's saying to the ignorant, to those that don't yet know, she says, you need to know about these two guests, these two groups, and you have to move towards the wise. Do not move toward the ignorant. It's almost like at her party, she's giving a presentation, a sales pitch, if you will. And I want to brace you here because this part of the passage for me was hard to unpack. I felt really good about the ignorant getting an invitation. I felt really good that wisdom did not make the um, unwise or the not knowing feel bad. That made me feel safe. But that hope shifts right here. Because what Solomon will describe, what Lady Wisdom will teach at her party, is that the arrogant are in a very bad place. A place where there's almost no hope. That pride can be so poisonous to us as persons. So poisonous to our potential. So poisonous to doing everything that God wants us to do. It's so poisonous, it's almost like there's no cure. Right, look at how sobering she presents her case to the ignorant as they're enjoying the party. They're drinking the mixed wine, they're eating the food. Lady Wisdom breaks the party, hits the microphone, says, guys, I have something to say. And look at what she says. Look at verse 7. Anyone who rebukes a mocker, your Bible might say the word scoffer, right? It, it, it's that snarky comment when you try to say, hey, I think this is the best way to do it. And that very sassy, snarky, just disrespectful comment comes out. A mocker, a scoffer. Anyone who rebukes a mocker will get an insult in return. Anyone who corrects The wicked will get hurt. Listen to this, verse 8. So don't bother correcting the mocker. They will only hate you. Look at the, the word, the language used here. He said, the arrogant are in such a position. Pride has so poisoned their perspective on anybody speaking into their lives that they will seek to injure those who try to help them. I mean, this is literally like biting the hand that feeds you, right? They've been so just just petrified, in a sense, by their pride, allowed the self-destructive just sabotage of their life to happen, that their arrogance is now making them stay on the sinking ship of their ignorance. They'll just stay there. It's like all those persons, captains, or maybe people who are just disillusioned, staying on the Titanic, repeating themselves, this thing will never sink, as it's sinking. Right? As they're going into the icy waters, there's no way it'll sink. Clearly, it's sinking. Ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep, this will never sink. That's what's being portrayed here. They're so deaf to lady wisdom, their pride has plugged their ears, they can't hear anymore. They don't want to hear. In fact, if you try to pull the finger out of the ear spiritually, they'll hit you. They'll injure you and they'll hate you. Isn't that scary? You see how ignorance is really not the enemy here. Not knowing is not the enemy here. What's the most dangerous place we could be in? An arrogant place, a prideful place. I got this. It's all handled. I know how to do this. Don't tell me what to do. Now contrast that. Look at the wise. Look at how Lady Wisdom talks about the wise. Ask yourself if this is more your posture. look at how she describes the wise. Instruct the wise and they will be even wiser. Teach the righteous. Notice how wisdom and righteousness go together. We think of wise as brilliant. In the scriptures, that's, that's not how it portrays it. It's skillful. At living in the world of God according to his design. That's wisdom. Skillful at living in the world of God according to his design. It's not about IQ. right? It's about obedience to his design. It says when you teach the wise, they become wiser. If you teach the righteous, they will learn even more. Now before we get to verse 10, here's what I don't want you to hear. We know that the arrogant are almost in this kind of fixed position. They're in this stuck position. They they can't move. They can't mature. Their their growth has been stifled, strangulated by their own pride. But then we contrast that with the wise and they have this very humble posture. They're, They're willing to learn, always seeking knowledge and hungry to know more. What we don't want to do is overread their humility and make it sound like they don't believe anything. Right? That the wise are like, well, I'm open to every new idea right? I don't know anything. I'm always the, te- always the learner. That's not a good way to view the wise. The wise have this wonderful balance of deep conviction and humility. Deep conviction, I know what is true, and I hold that at the center of who I am. But the center truth of my life is so humbling, I'm willing to learn. Like, look at what is at the center. What is the center truth of the wise that always humbles them? Verse 10 tells us, The fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. What sits at the center? What's the sun of their orbit? It's the fear of God. Now, at first, if you have never read the Bible before, and you're just encountering this, and you think, fear, what a terrible term to use in reference to God. And I'll tell you, it's a very appropriate term, a very appropriate term. Don't read this term as terror, right? Sometimes when we interact with that term, that's what we think. In our English minds, we think fear is terror. Fear means if I have a fear of spiders, what does that mean? I run away from the spider, It's not, I'm going to go hug a spider, right? If I have a fear of snakes, what does that mean? I'm going to run away from snakes. So we take this idea, if we fear God, we'll run away from him. But that's not a biblical view of what fear is. All right, let me show you this. This is Exodus 20.20. Exodus 20.20 probably is the best description of fear. And look at how strange this passage is. It's really actually confusing What is Moses actually trying to say? Moses, the great leader, has brought the people of God out of Egypt, and he's bringing them to the promised land, a land promised to Abraham hundreds of years before they ever get there. And they're on the precipice of getting to this promise. They're on their way to be in God's land. They're basically birthing, in a sense, they're at that initial stage of becoming the people of God. And so all these great things are happening where God wants to finally meet with his people. So God shows up on a mountain, and in thunder and lightning, he speaks to his people directly. It's terrifying. They prepare themselves, they get to this point, and when God shows up on the mountain, now remember, this is the God who they've already seen break the world power Egypt through these amazing warfare-like miracles called plagues. So they know his power. But then they get right into close proximity and he starts speaking to them on this mountain and it shakes and look at their response. They're scared. And look what Moses says to them. I remember reading this for the first time. I don't know your interaction with the Bible, but there are so many times I read the Bible and I'm like, what? Maybe it's because I'm a slow reader. I remember reading this passage like, this doesn't make any sense. All right? look at this. Moses says to them, Exodus 20, 20, don't be afraid. That makes sense. Don't be afraid. Moses answered to them, For God has come in this way to test you, and so that you, what's that word? Fear. So that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. Do you see the contradiction here? He says, Don't be afraid. God showed up, so you'd be afraid. What? Either this is really slick marketing to keep it in your brain or Moses is just speaking in contradictions. Here's what he's doing. He is dispelling one type of fear and instilling another type of fear. He's saying, don't be afraid of God. Don't run from him. He's not a spider. He's not a snake. He's not a cockroach. Whatever you're afraid of. Don't be afraid of him. But be afraid of him. Now, what does that mean? It says, be afraid of him so much so that you'll st- you keep yourself from sin because you want communion with him so much. This reminds me, I was a- afraid of my father. But not this type of fear. This type of fear. I didn't want to disappoint him and I didn't want anything to create distance in my relationship with him. And I know when I would do something wrong, I remember I let out my dog. His name was Blackie because he was black. <laughs> creative kid. I know you're like, this makes sense why you couldn't spell that first word in elementary school. Yes, very creative. So I let Blackie out and I shouldn't have let him out. And my dad found him and got him and everything. And man, the weight of disappointment like, that I felt, I felt that my dad didn't approve. And I remember running to him. I still, I'm like, I have a vivid memory of this. And I was young, I was maybe like five or six. Um, and I remember running to him and just grabbing his leg, right, and I was a little guy, I'm still a little guy, he was a bigger guy, and I'm just like, gra- I felt like when I grabbed his thigh, it was like this, right, but I was a little guy, and I just grabbed, jeans, he's always wore jeans, right, light colored jeans, and I could feel the texture on my fingers, even now, I, as I remember it, I'm just grabbing his thigh, and saying, Dad, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry, I was afraid of disappointing. I was afraid that there'd be something that would distance me from my father. This is what he's saying here. See, the wise have this fear of God. They're so humbled. They know they're not the author of the universe. They know they're not the center of the universe. They know they're not the fountainhead of wisdom. They know that comes from outside. They have this humble posture. I am dependent My existence wasn't from me, and it's not for me. It came from him, and it's for him. And I don't want anything to disrupt our relationship to each other. See, this is the the problem with human wisdom, is wisdom, true wisdom, is never secular. You can't take God out of wisdom, because the fear of God belongs at the very center of our understanding of the world. And the moment you remove that, here's what you do. You will put a truth in there that will cause oppression. I truly believe, and I know this may be a front to some things, but I truly believe the only absolute we could put at the center of our lives is the knowledge of God. And if we put anything in there, it doesn't matter what it is. Even if it's good, it will eventually cause oppression. Because we will place it there in pride. I achieved. I figured it out. Whether at the center we put human solidarity, at the center we put human desire, human feelings, at the center we put technology and advancement and innovation and progress, at the center we put capitalism, at the center we put conservatism, at the center we put liberalism, at the center we put communism, capitalism, whatever you want to put there. Anything you put in the center will eventually oppress because it will be placed there first in pride because you figured it out. But if you see at the center, there's the fear of God. There's a reverence. He is the author. He he started all this. He created all this. He knows what's best. I only flourish under his design. Do you see the humble posture there? You've discovered that if he's at the center, then it all makes sense. That truth can't make you an oppressor. Why? Why? because you didn't place it there in pride. You found it in humility. He knows better. This is what Lady Wisdom calls us to. And she says, when we find that, oh, there's so much joy at this party. Look at what happens at this party. Verse 11. These are amazing party favors. Wisdom will multiply your days and add years to your life. If you become wise, you will be the one to benefit. If you scorn wisdom, you will be the one to suffer. Stop here. Verse 11, so important. Who is the primary beneficiary of wisdom in your life? You. Who is the primary victim to the foolishness of your life? You. What what does verse 12 say to us? If you become wise you will be the one to benefit. If you scoff wisdom, you will be the one to suffer. Now it's true. Do foolish decisions affect other people? Yes. Do wise decisions affect other people? Yes. But the primary beneficiary and the primary victim are the one who either acted in wisdom or the one who acted in foolishness. We can flourish under God's wisdom. We can flourish if we are okay with admitting, hey, I don't know. But I'll listen to wisdom. I'll listen to lady wisdom. Because look at the contrary call. Right? Look at lady folly. Her party is not a good one. Her party is a party of death. Look at her call. And look at who she calls first. Look at verse 13. The woman named folly is brash. She is ignorant and doesn't know it. She sits in her doorway on the heights overlooking the city. Just remember Lady Wisdom. What did Lady Wisdom do? Man, she's over here mixing wine, whatever that means, making cocktails. I don't know. She's over there, she's got seven pillars, seven supporting columns of this wonderful venue. Everything is set up for you. She's got great food. Lady Folly, what is she doing? She's like leaning on her doorpost. I just imagine leaning on her doorpost with like a cigarette. She's lazy. It says she's brash. She's lazy, loud, and lacks all moral sense. And she's not preparing a party for you. She's hardly even thinking of you. Here's what you're going to realize. Lady Wisdom, she is, or sorry, Lady Folly, she is not inviting guests. She is hunting prey. And who is she hunting? Look at her invitation. It's almost the same exact invitation as Lady Wisdom. Right? Look at her call out. She calls out to men going or going by who are minding their own business. Come in with me, she urges the simple, to those who lack good judgment. Who is that? It's not the wise, it's not the arrogant. Who is that? It's the ignorant. The same exact phrase was used by Lady Wisdom. She called out, Hey, 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 you don't know. That's okay. Not knowing is not bad. You're okay. Please hear what I'm saying. Come enjoy this party. It's going to be great. Lady Folly invites that same group. She's after that same group. Why? She doesn't need to call the arrogant. Why? They're already with her. They're already not listening to wisdom, and that's fine. The wise they don't go in. But she knows who's vulnerable. Ooh, the ignorant, those that don't yet know. What does this tell us? We can't stay in ignorance. It's not bad to not know. But it's dangerous at times to not know because we place ourselves in a position where we are vulnerable to the seductive temptations of lady folly. And she is putting forth food appetizers of death, right, Half truths that barely fill your tummy and then lead to death. Like, look at her party. She says, she calls out to them, verse 17, Stolen water is refreshing. Food eaten in the secret, in secret tastes the best. But little do they know that the dead are there. Her guests are in the depths of the grave. That idea of stolen water, the idea of bread in secret or the food of secret, this is referencing to really the sins that have been mentioned in Proverbs 1 through 8. Stolen water is a reference to sexual sin moving outside of the model that God has for sexual relationship. Whether it be promiscuity or infidelity, lust, whatever that is. This is what stolen waters are. The bread of secrecy means violence, means theft. These are all things that will satisfy for a moment, almost appetizers to death. You don't just order appetizers. Well, unless you're cheap, (laughs) right? They just fill your tummy enough. And that's what's being described here. Her food can't even compare to that of Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom has mixed wine and wonderful food. She has got water. That's it. That's all she has. It satisfies for a moment, but in the end, it's poisonous. It kills. She is seeking to devour and not seeking to entertain or give joy. What makes us pray what what makes us vulnerable to lady folly our pride we place ourselves in an arrogant place i don't want to listen i don't want to hear and when we get to that place of arrogance it's a place where god's voice isn't very loud it's faint and lady folly is on the loudspeaker This is the the biggest, or one of the biggest pitfalls we could find. Is to hold on with pride. I know it. I know it. I can do it on my own. Leave me alone. We'll lose out on our potential. All the things that God would have for us, we'll lose out on. This is why for me, it is so incredibly important for you to help me learn for you to help me listen. I want to lead you well. I'm ready to go. I'm so charged up. I got so much energy. I can't even contain it. I know it's cloudy and meh, right? I don't care. Like, I'm so charged up. I don't know what it is. I'm still solar powered from California, right? I'm still just like that energy coming out of everywhere. And I want to seize the day. Like, I'm so excited about where we're headed, where we're going. And I'm ready to move. And I know you're ready to move. And I want to do those things. It was so interesting that two of my mentors just recently, as I was engaging with them, this is where they said, Paul, you'll know how to lead if you listen first. And I was like, I don't want to do that. Like, that takes time. I got time for time. Right? I'm ready to go. I love how this just happens to be where we land on our Bible reading. Because if you were to ask me this, Paul, where are we going? Paul, what are the plans for the future? I have to admit, after reading 1 Kings 3, James 1, and now Proverbs 9, I think this is the right thing to say. I don't know yet. But will you help me figure it out? I don't know yet. Will you help me figure it out? Please, do me a great favor. Help me to listen well. Help me to learn. I know, leaning into that survey, it's going to take you 15 minutes to do it. There's a lot of questions, and we added questions because we're just mean. (laughs) No, because we really want to learn. Help me. Take that survey. Do it today. Just get it it out of the way. Take your time. Do it. Now we're going to come to a time in our service, a time of communion. And as we think of this passage, I want us to prepare our hearts in this. As you come to the table to be reminded of the cross, the cross is the great kryptonite to pride because pride cannot grow in the soil of the cross. It can't. We're not in danger of being the arrogant if we keep ourselves close to the cross. So as you come to this table to participate in the elements that remind us of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins and the transformation of our lives, I want you to do this. As you move toward the table, you're moving toward remembering the cross. Let your pride die. See, pride will grab us if we see ourselves as achievers. I did it. I figured it out. I'm an achiever. I'm a mover. Uh, Intel needs me, and I have innovated so much. I've climbed the corporate ladder. I'm an achiever. My resume is impressive. The cross laughs at your resume. It's not impressed by your achievements. The cross reminds us none of us could achieve a right standing with God. Pride doesn't grow in the soil of the cross. It can't because the cross reminds us that none of us achieve the status we need before God. The cross also reminds us that none of us can arrange the affairs of our lives perfectly. We become prideful when we think, I can just put it all in place. I know what's best. That's the first sin of Adam and Eve. God, we know better than you. We know what's good. Let your pride die. Let your pride die. Are there any areas of your life where you are arrogantly holding on to them? Maybe your finances. God, I know better. Maybe it's your kids' careers or or, or educational ambitions. God, I know better. Maybe maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your career path. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's your political positions. I don't know what it is. Is there any area of your life where you're doing this to the Lord? I got this. I know what I'm doing. Man, let your pride die. Because when pride dies, watch and see how God uses us. We fear him and are humble before him, watch how he uses us. Don't let your pride stifle the potential of the next season for us. I'll do my best to not let mine either. Will you join me in that? Come and let your pride die. Now, maybe you're not yet following Jesus. And as you come to this table, I want you to come here first. Let your pride die. You can't achieve enough before God. You can't please him. The only thing you could do is admit humbly, I can't, handle my sin. I can't get right with you. That's Jesus calling you right there. (laughs) Right? Just run with the interruptions, which you have to do. But I'm serious for you. Let your pride die. In Christianity you will not find a religion of pride, a religion of of achievement. You'll find a religion of humility. You need God's help. And through the cross is the only way you get it. So my prayer for you is that as I pray, you would let your pride down, confess your sin, confess your need for God, and take communion for the first time as a new Christian after laying down your pride. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, that you, we thank you that you're eager to give us wisdom. You're eager to, to give us understanding. Your voice is calling out to us no matter where we are. Whether we find ourselves in a position of like, man, I don't know. We find ourselves in that, that ignorant position, not as an insult, but we just don't know the right answer. We don't know the way to go. You're not insulted by our ignorance, and you don't insult us with, your, with our ignorance. You don't shame us or embarrass us. It's okay not to know. And when we can humbly admit that, that's when your voice is the loudest in our life. So, Father, I pray that you'd find sunrise, you'd find me in a posture where pride is gone and pride is dead. And Father, remind us, if we have a trouble letting our pride die, I pray that you put the cross right in front of us because none of us can stand tall and proud staring at our crucified Savior, the one who died because we had the need that couldn't be met by ourselves. The cross is a violent reminder of how dark our sin was but it's also a bright reminder of how deep your love is. So Father, I pray that you'd find sunrise today, a church of no arrogance, a church of no pride, a church filled with the fear of God, filled with humility, ready to listen to Lady Wisdom as she shows us the future. And Father, for those who are here, I haven't started following you yet, they're still trying to answer those big questions of life. I pray today, Father, you'd speak to them and say, lay down your pride. I'm here to help. Lay down your pride. I'm here. I'm here to forgive your sin. I pray today would be a day they celebrate communion for the first time. Because today is the day they took Christ. Even right now, they could pray, I'm releasing it all. I'm releasing it all. I confess my sin. I see that Jesus is the only way for me to be right. Only way for me to have a right standing with God. If that's you in this room, just call out to Him and take communion with us. Take Christ and then take at the table elements. Church family, let's say Amen together. Amen.